morning. So the, the song we just sang is uh, speaking to us about priorities. The things that uh, we must leave behind, the things we must do differently in order to follow the Lord. Uh, this, this week, uh, Thursday I think it was, we found out that my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law's mother, my wife's grandmother had passed away. And so uh, that made a decision for one of her sisters. Uh, my mother-in-law is 94 years old. She lives in Nebraska, and the funeral is today. And so one of my sister-in-laws was saying, should I go to the funeral or should I stay and host my yearly Super Bowl party? Decisions. You have you priorities. Where are your priorities? And she decided to go to the funeral. And just the brother-in-laws are getting together for the Super Bowl. So all the, all the sisters are in Nebraska with their mom, who is already there. But we have to make priorities. And, and the Bible, uh, the book of Romans that we're in, challenges our priorities. What's the most important thing in your life? For Paul... Uh, at, at this point in his, his life, as he writes this thing, if you remember, his priority is, I, I want to get to Spain. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to go to Spain, and I, I really want to visit the church in Rome as well. And so, and he's going to challenge them to some things. He's gonna cha- as he talks to them, as he inter- continues to introduce himself, his mission, his ministry to them, he brings challenges to us, to our priorities. What are we going to decide to do? Last week, he talked. He focused on uh, uh, our passage that focused on Paul's heart for the church. But he wants them to know. He wants them to know it's more than just uh, going to Spain. He's, he's, they're not just a bypass. He just doesn't want to pass through. But he also wants to give them something as well. And so that's really what. He's talking about now, he's introducing in chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, he expresses why, he expresses how much he wants to visit them. Last week we looked at 8 through 12. In these verses, Paul thanks God for the church's faith, that it's being proclaimed in the whole world, that their obedience is being seen, and, and, and God is being glorified among the nations. He also wants them to know that he prays for them. He doesn't just pray for them, he prays sort of without ceasing. And his main prayer is, I pray that I can, can come visit them, I can, I can see them, I can be with them. And he gives them three reasons why he wants to, there, there may be more, but these are the three he lists, why he longs to be with them, why he longs to come and see them. We looked at the first two last week. First, to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them, whether that's his spiritual gifts or or he would lay hands on them and give them spiritual gifts, it, it doesn't say. And second, that they, together, Paul and the church, that they would mutually be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. That coming together could tell about God's work in his life. They could tell about God's work in their life. And everybody would be encouraged. And that brings us to our passage today, verses 13 to 15. We're cruising along, you know. Got fifteen, four weeks, 15 verses. Paul gives the third reason why he longs to come to them. Verse 13, he writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. He wants to assure them just how how much, I mean, I'm praying without ceasing, I'm trying to get to you guys. 
doesn't want him to misunderstand. He wants him to know, I, I really care about you, but thus far I've been prevented. He doesn't say, he doesn't say why he's been prevented, probably because ministry in the, in the sort of east, in the, in the uh, churches he's, he's founded and working with. And then he continues in verse 13 to give the third reason he wants to come to them. And that is Paul's desire to harvest fruit among them. To harvest fruit among them. Verse 13. Again, often intended to come to you, thus far prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now what does Paul mean by reap some harvest among you? What is is he talking about? I think the NASB, if you have an NASB, I'll put it up there, gives a a little better translation. It says, so that I may uh, obtain, harvest, or reap some fruit among you. That's why I titled the message, Harvesting Fruit. That's Paul's third reason. He wants, he's wanting to visit the church in Rome. He wants, he wants to harvest some fruit among them. Now, does that mean he wants to uh, go out with them as they pick oranges? No. Paul's obviously using this uh, agricultural farming metaphor. Jesus did the same thing, if you remember, throughout his ministry. All over the place. John 15 maybe the most famous. Where he gives this whole lesson to his disciples about vines and branches. This, uh, verse John 15.5. He says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus isn't talking about actual vines and branches and fruit. He's illustrating that abiding, that dwelling, that living in his presence will produce much fruit. Fruit. Fruit being uh, maybe the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Godly attributes in being in Jesus' presence produces godly attributes in our lives. And those godly attributes then overflow into the, other, into the lives of others, impacting the lives of others. And in Romans 1.13, Paul says something similar. When he says he wants to reap a harvest among them, harvest fruit among them and among the rest of the Gentiles, this certainly uh, includes harvesting, you know, what we normally think of harvesting non-believers into the kingdom of God. That's the initial stages of this harvesting fruit. Paul's desire is desires to be used by God to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. But don't forget, he's writing to the church in Rome. Now, possibly... Maybe, maybe even certainly, there were people that came to church in Rome who weren't truly saved. He could harvest them. It's also possible that Paul is referring to harvesting fruit in the city of Rome, beyond the, the church, among the rest of the Gentiles. But along with harvesting what we call non-believers, Paul's also talking about harvesting fruit within the church, among the church, among believers. He wants to come to the church in Rome that he might strengthen them, that they might be mutually encouraged together by one another's faith, and that he might harvest some fruit in their lives. That is, he might be used by God in their lives to produce harvest-worthy fruit. Now what is fruit? What fruit does Paul desire to harvest in the church? What godly attributes Does he want uh, to harvest? And and I think it's probably all the same ones Jesus is talking about. If you abide in me, bear much fruit. But I think we can boil it down 
Because Paul boils it down in his mission. What was his mission? You remember a couple weeks ago, looking at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses, uh, mainly verse uh, 5 and 6. Jesus said, Jesus Christ, he, he writes, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So he's received gr- the grace of God. He's been called to be an apostle. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul said Jesus gave him grace, made him an apostle for this purpose, to bring about, to produce the fruit of, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you, Roman church, called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the fruit that Paul wants to harvest, I think we could boil it down in Rome and beyond, is this obedience of faith. We talked about that when we were in those verses. He desires to see this fruit begin in the lives of unbelievers, that people will come to faith in Christ, put their trust in Christ, Repent of their sins, obey and obey Christ. Move from the, the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And he longs to be with the believers in Rome that God might use him to continue that growth, the growth of that fruit of obedience in their lives. That through Paul's ministry, they might, they might grow. Because uh, you grow in your trust. You grow in your obedience to the Lord. It's not a, a one-time thing. What I want us to see is that Paul's mission, his ministry, was not just leading people to Christ. How do we want to, you know, sharing the gospel, uh, uh, having altar calls, ca- uh, causing people to pray the sinner's prayer. That was not his ministry. It wasn't just evangelism. That was just the beginning. The initial uh, obedience of faith. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. And his mission was to make disciples. To be used by God to produce and grow the fruit of trust and obedience in the church and throughout the, the rest of the Gentile world. Now that's quite a mission. I mean, he's, he's been given a lot of responsibility. And he is he's sort of this initial apostle to, to the Gentiles, to that world. But it's the same mission that Jesus gave his disciples, that Jesus gave to his church in Matthew 18, 19. He commanded, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're to go. We're to produce the fruit of obedience of faith among the nations for the glory of God. Why? Well, certainly, certainly, we're to do this in obedience to the command of Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? But I believe Paul, he goes on, verse 14, to give this other reason. This thing we might not even think about. And I think it's important. Verse 14, Paul tells us of his obligation to the harvest field obligation to the harvest field. He says he wants to harvest some fruit in the church of Rome and among the rest of the Gentiles. And then he tells us, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. What does Paul mean by he's under obligation? I don't think it's quite what we we would think. That word obligation means uh, one who owes another. It could be translated, and I think it is in a couple other translations. He's a debtor. 
If I borrow something from you, then I'm in debt to you. I'm under obligation to pay you back. My son has recently borrowed some, something from me. I won't tell you what it is, but he's, he's a debtor to me now. He owes, he owes it, and I'm not going to let him forget it. In fact, I'm reminding him right now, right? Paul says he's a debtor. He owes something to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Greeks are those who, who spoke the Greek language. Uh, they were part of the Greco-Roman culture of the day. That would include most of the people that Paul had already been ministering to, you know, in Ephesus and Galatia and the, in the Roman Empire. And barbarians, barbarians doesn't necessarily mean what we would think this uncivilized people, you know, eating with their fingers and, and toes, I don't know. Those who don't behave properly. Barbarians means, I mean, it's from the, 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 the word bar, 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 because you couldn't understand what the people were saying. It's from the word for foreigner, one who has a different or strange speech. These are, these are the non-Greek speaking Gentiles. On the out, uh, 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 these are the, first the Greeks, the Greek speaking Gentiles, and then the non-Greek speaking Gentiles. Those on the outskirts or even beyond the Roman Empire. Paul is also under obligation to the wise and the foolish. People from all intellectual, all cultural backgrounds. He's not a respecter of persons. Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. Really, what Paul's saying is he's, he's a debtor to the entire Gentile world. In Matthew 9.37, Jesus said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Jesus uses the harvest metaphor here with the harvest picturing uh, the vast numbers of people in this world in need of the gospel. And Paul understands that he's a laborer in the harvest field. That he's been sent out by the Lord of the harvest. And that, that, that he's under obligation to the harvest field, to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, to the Gentile world. And we might think uh, at first, well, that's, that, that's a little strange. Is that really what he's talking about? We might ask several questions about Paul's debt to the Gentile world. First, first, why doesn't Paul say, why isn't Paul obligated to God? Aren't we obligated, aren't we debtors to those who've, who've loaned us something? But the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish, the Gentile world, haven't loaned Paul anything. So we might think that verse 14 makes more sense if we read it, if, we, if it were to say, and we might go, yes, I'm under obligation to God who gave His Son to die in my place and who called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Or I'm under obligation to Jesus Christ who gave His life for me, who's my Lord and my Master. Shouldn't Paul be obligated to God who gave Him so much? And the answer is, no, not at all. Because God didn't loan him anything. God freely gave. God freely gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in Paul's place, to die in our place. God freely gives new life in Christ. Paul received the grace of God on that road to Damascus when he was saved by Jesus Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. 
a gift of God. And Paul continued to receive God's grace throughout his life. Remember when describing his mission, we read it a second ago, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to accomplish our mission, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Along with apostleship, Paul received the grace of God that he might fulfill his mission. And so you might think, in fact, some people would imply or even say that we are obligated to serve the Lord because of the grace he's given us. That, those do, that makes no sense if you understand obligation, if you understand grace. It's wrong-headed thinking. God didn't loan us grace or anything else. He freely gave us grace. When you receive grace from God, you don't become a debtor to God. Remember, grace means gift. Grace, a gift, cannot and must not be paid back as a debt. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. If I, if I give you a gift, and then you try to pay me back for it, you turn it into something it's not. You turn it from, from, from grace to something you want to earn, you want to pay for. So grace does not create an obligation to repay a debt. So often we would like it to, wouldn't we? It seems to be our natural bent. I've got to do something for God. He did, some, he did so much for me. Right? We're under, we, want to, we want to do something. We want to merit His favor. We want to be part of the equation. But it's grace. It's free. No obligation. No debt. Paul or you or I are not obligated to God because the grace He's given us. In fact, here's the really cool part. It's grace that cancels our obligation. To, yes, we're under obligation to God, uh, people. But grace pays our debt. Grace doesn't create debt. Grace pays our debt. In Matthew 6.12, Jesus teaching His disciples to pray. He says, pray this. Forgive us our debts. We have some debts. As, as we also forgive our debtors. And those debts are, are our sins. Forgive us our sins. Our sins put us in debt to God. We owe God payment for our sin. Romans 6.23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death. When we sin, when we rebel against our, our Creator, when we, when we choose to go our own way, when we choose to seek our own glory instead of the glory of God, we earn God's wrath. For the wages of sin is death. We owe Him a debt of eternal punishment, eternal death. But Paul continues, the, the, the greatest contrasting verse in all of Scripture, for the wages of sin and death is death, but the free gift of God, the free gift, not the loan gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We owe God death. We owe God uh, the punishment of our sins. But by God's grace, His free gift, we instead receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. God's grace forgives our debts. Grace pays our debts to God. Grace does not make us a debtor to God. Oh, that we could grab hold of this. That we could understand the, the, the 
freeness, that God, the sovereignty of God's grace on our lives, that our worship and our service to God must never be an attempt to repay the grace that He's freely given us. It's, it's, it's in many ways an insult if we think we can do anything to pay back the free grace that God has given us. We cannot and should not and must not seek to repay the Lord for, for His death on the cross for our sin. But that does not mean Paul or you or I are not to worship and serve the Lord. He's the Lord. But our worship and service to the Lord must not be motivated by obligation, by debt. Instead, our desire to serve and obey and live for the Lord should be motivated by love. Yes, our love for Him, but our love for Him is only and always a response of His first love. We love because He first loved us. That's certainly the case for Paul. That was his motivation throughout uh, if you read the letter to the Corinthian church, throughout the church, this letter, he's having to defend his conduct and his character and, and his calling to be an apostle of Christ. The Corinthians were kind of a little off there. And he has to, he has to, he's trying to bring him back in line. And in response to those who questions, questioned his motives for ministry, Paul said, For the love of Christ, why do I do what I do? For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was motivated not by obligation, but by the love of Christ. Knowing that it was Christ's love that caused Christ to die in His place, and therefore we're to live for Christ. Not out of obligation, but in response to His love. So that answers, I think, the question why Paul is not obligated to God. Because grace is not loaned. It's a free gift. Grace is not to be repaid. Grace does not create obligation. It removes obligation. And our motivation for serving is not duty or debt or obligation. It's love. So we're left with the question, if Paul isn't obligated to God, Why the heck, that's not in your notes, but I I like it in there. Why is Paul obligated to the Gentile world? This harvest field. That's what Romans 1.14 says. I am under obligation both to Greeks, barbarians, both to wise, to this whole Gentile world thing. Now some of you might think this means that Paul, as a servant of Jesus Christ, out of love serving, uh, as an apostle to the Gentiles, he's under obligation commanded by God to go to the Gentiles. And in one sense, in the sense that we are all under obligation to obey the Lord, that's true. But remember, like I said, this isn't actually just the standard obligation word we would use. It means to be in debt, to be indebted to, to owe something to. So Paul is specifically saying he's in debt, not to God, but to the Gentile world, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. And as we already said, we usually get in debt because uh, someone has loaned us something, right? But the Gentiles haven't loaned Paul anything. So again, why the debt? Why is he obligated 
to this people group, this vast people group. Well, let me see if I can explain uh, with an illustration. Suppose everyone in this room were passengers on the same boat, and we're in the middle of the ocean. And our boat uh, crashes into an iceberg. I, I was going to try to whistle the theme from Titanic, but I can't remember it. So, and we're sinking fast. The water is ice cold. It's shark infested. So we have no hope of staying afloat until we're rescued. Now, of course, everyone starts uh, heading for the lifeboats. But we soon discover that even worse than, I mean, even worse than the Titanic, they had some lifeboats. It seems our captain has forgot to attach the lifeboats before we left port. And therefore, we're all going to die a frozen and bloody death. Sweet. No. You, however, as you came on the boat, were given special information. Before boarding the ship, you were handed a gift. And when you opened the gift, you found a message. And the message included a map of the ship with an X marking the location of these awesome, uh, incredibly shark-resistant, durable floating rafts. Enough rafts to save everyone. So the question is, what are you going to do with this message? What are you going to do with this map? Are you obligated? Do you owe it to the rest of the passengers to share the message with them? Yes. I think we would all agree, yes. Even though no one in the boat has loaned you anything... No one has done anything for you. The fact that you are in the same sinking boat together means that you have an obligation to share this message with everyone on board. And that, I believe, is what Paul means when he says he's in debt to the Gentile world. He understands that they are in the same sinking ship. But he's been given the message of grace. He's been given a a special message of salvation. So now he's a debtor to others who are, uh, who are uh, like he was, sinking in the waters of destruction. He owes them something. And so the final question is, what does he owe them? What does Paul owe the Gentile world? He owes them the same thing that he received. The same message he received. He owes them the map to salvation. The gospel of grace. In verse 14, he says he is under obligation. He's in debt to the Gentile world. And in verse 15, he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's heard and received the gospel of grace. And through the gospel, he's been saved. He's been called. And now, he must share this gospel message with others. You see, when you hear and you receive the gospel message, and it tells you, of how by the grace of God, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, you can escape the sinking ship of eternal death and receive instead eternal life in the presence of God. When you hear and you receive by faith that message of grace, you become a debtor. You owe others the gospel message that you yourself have received. 
So that like you, they have the opportunity to escape eternal death and receive eternal life. You owe it to them. What kind of person would you or I be if we withheld the map uh, for those people in the sinking ship? And what kind of person would you or I be if we withhold the gospel of grace from those who are headed for eternal death? Eternal separation from God. Well, I believe the kind of person we would be would be the kind of person who had never truly experienced, didn't understand the grace of God in their own life. Because when we understand that we are saved, not because of who we are, not because of anything we've done, but in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done, that grace has entered into our lives. It's totally and completely undeserved. When we understand, then we understand our obligation to others. If I had earned it, if I had done something for it, then maybe I could say, well, but you haven't, so you don't deserve it. I've done nothing. You've done nothing. We've done nothing. Nothing? Nothing. It's all God's grace. When we sinners receive the grace of God, we are, by the grace of God, transformed. The grace we receive from God enables and I believe causes us to share the grace of God with others. It's sort of a, I mean, it's self-replicating this grace. In 2 Corinthians 9.8, Paul writes to those who've received the grace of God. He says, "And, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. If you've received the grace of God, God makes it abound in you. And as grace abounds in your life, good works abound also. Good works come from those who've received the grace of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourself, not of works. And then in verse 10 he says, Okay, I knew I was going to do that. Uh, We are... We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We receive by faith, by grace, by faith we receive the grace of God that we might do good works. Good works come from those who receive the grace of God. And the goodest work, if I may, we can do is to share the gospel with others. I know that's not a real word. The greatest, but it's the good news, the good work the goodest, the best we can do, the best work we can do is share the gospel of grace with others. So so if our lives are not abounding in every good work, if we are withholding the gospel of grace from others as as if we deserved it and they do not, then you show that you never received it. Because the grace of God actually transforms you. It it replicates within you. It overflows into your world. Paul was a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians precisely because he did not deserve the grace he received. Again, if he deserved it, then he might have to go in search for others who deserved it as well. And we are debtors to the people in our world precisely because we did not deserve the grace that we've received. It's my prayer 
for us, that the Lord would, would speak to our hearts, that we would feel the joy of the grace that we've received, and then, and then we would receive, we would, we would feel the weight of the grace that we've received, that it puts us under obligation, not to God, but to those around us, that we would see the world around us in a different light. And we would know that those who have received the grace of God, for those, for us, that it's our obligation to share the grace of God with the other undeserving people in our world. That's everybody, by the way. There isn't one. Not here, not there, not anywhere that deserves the grace of God. There's one final thing that I'd like us to focus on before we have communion this morning. We already talked about Paul's uh, desire to harvest fruit. And we said this, this included harvesting f- the fruit of obedience, of faith, and the lives of unbelievers as, as, as sort of evangelism, bringing them into uh, that relationship with Christ. But it also refers to among the church. That it also refers to discipleship, growing in that obedience to faith. And if I were to ask you, how do you harvest fruit among uh, unbelievers? How do you make unbelievers into believers? I mean, you know, God does that, but how do you get involved in the process? How does God use you as means to, to bring people to faith in Christ? How do you do evangelism? Well, it may involve some time. There may be some relationship building, some trust building, some demonstrating the love of Christ for people. But ultimately, we would answer that harvesting fruit involves preaching or proclaiming or sharing the gospel, that special message of the gospel of grace that you received, giving them an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? So that's Preaching the gospel. That's how we do evangelism. And, you know, and again, there's things on top of it, things surrounding it, but at the heart of it, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings people to faith. But what if I were to ask you, how do you harvest fruit in the church? How do you bring about this obedience of faith within the body of Christ? How do you make disciples? And again, there would be a lot of answers have to do with relationship and trust and studying God's Word together and praying together and going through the spiritual disciplines together. All good things, all necessary. But I'd like us to see something that I believe is crucial uh, for our discipleship, for our growth in Jesus Christ, for our, uh, you know, we have salvation, for our then sanctification, which is just a uh, word for your growing in Christ, growing to become more like Christ. It's crucial it's crucial for our, uh, the growth of our obedience of faith, the growth of our obedience and the growth of our faith together. Something that's not often thought about in the lives of believers, and that is preaching the gospel to the church. Did you notice verse 15? So I'm eager, you know, I'm, I'm under obligation to this Gentile world, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wants the to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome, the church in Rome. And I don't think he means uh, uh, to the unbelievers that happen to be sitting in the church, in the pews that, that week. 
he's writing to the believers and he, he says, to you also, I want to preach the gospel. And that says to me that we, the church, need to continually, continually hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace. And it's by hearing the gospel that this fruit of obedience, I think it's by hearing uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ that this fruit of obedience to truth uh, grows and is built up and is produced in our lives. Therefore, we're to be continually reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ should be preached. I try... My goal, I try to include the essence of the gospel in every message I give. I don't always succeed. should be included as we study God's Word together. We should focus on the gospel. Because it's not only through the gospel that we're saved, but it's through the gospel of grace that we're enabled to live the Christian life. That we're enabled to trust and obey the Lord. That we're empowered to trust and obey the Lord. Our faith begins with the gospel of grace and our Christian lives are sustained by that same good news of of grace over and over and over again. As as I think Chad's the one that reminds me uh, a lot, we're not that smart. We need to hear it again and again and again. In Romans 15, As Paul nears the end of his letter to the Romans, he writes this, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay, what's he saying here? What Paul says here is that he's not merely interested in in getting professions of faith by first time preaching the gospel, which is crucial, which we need, which, I mean, take the the gospel to those that have never heard. He's interested, I mean, and and he wants to do that. But he's also interested in bringing to God the offering of a sanctified people. That is, he wants to bring about the obedience of faith in all the Gentiles. And the way he works towards this end in the priestly service of the gospel is the priestly service of the gospel of God, preaching the gospel of God's grace over and over the grace of God. Because we are so prone to the other. We're so prone to think we're something. We're so prone to try to earn God's favor. It's the gospel of grace that converts the sinner to the saint and the gospel of grace that grows the saint and sustains the saint in this world. We must be told the gospel for the first time, and we must be reminded of the gospel again and again. So the gospel of grace is what we preach to unbelievers, and the gospel of grace is what we preach to believers. That's why Paul says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Not to get them saved, but to create growth in their lives, to bring about sanctification, transformation in their lives. Think about it. As you walk through this life, Christian, as you encounter challenges, setbacks, suffering, and pain, as you face temptation, and as you sometimes fall to that temptation, as you fall to sin, as you're called uh, to sacrificial obedience, giving your life to the Lord 
what do you need to hear? What do you need to know? What do you need to trust in? What do you need to believe? What do you need to put your faith in? Answer the gospel of grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that by God's grace, He sent His Son Jesus into our world. And that Jesus freely chose to give His life for you. That through the death of Christ, through the death of Christ, you've not only been, uh, your sins have not only been wiped away, but you've been given the power to overcome sin in your life. That's the gospel. You've been given the Holy Spirit who convicts and empowers you to fight the temptations and sin. You've been given the Holy Spirit who comforts you in times of suffering and pain. And even more, the Gospel says that this world is not your home. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you therefore can spend, will spend, eternity in the presence of a holy God. That puts this whole thing in perspective. The Gospel. That, my friends, is the message we need to hear over and over and over again. And that's the message that we're under obligation to share with the rest of our world. And that, I believe, is one of, if not the main reason, Jesus instituted what we're going to do here. Communion. The Lord's Supper. In Luke 22.19, we read, And He, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering when we remember Jesus? We're remembering the gospel. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Each time we come to this table, we remember, we proclaim the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each time we come, we remember that it was through his crucified broken body, His spilt blood that we're saved. Each time we come, we remember that it was the grace of God that sent His Son into our world and that nailed His Son to a cross for our sakes. To pay for our sins and to give us an eternal relationship with Him. Each time we come to this table, we're reminded I pray we're reminded that we don't deserve what we have. That we are an undeserving people, but we've been given the grace of God and therefore we're under obligation to share the gospel of grace with the rest of this undeserving world. I would ask uh, if the ushers and the, the, that are those that are distributing the elements this morning and the worship team would come forward. And at this time, I, I just ask you, Uh, this morning, to prepare your hearts to be uh, for what's to come, to be physically reminded of the gospel of grace, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've never received God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, I'd give you this opportunity as we're going to take a minute here and and we're going to pray silently. I'd give you this opportunity to put your trust in Him. This morning, uh, if you're here, you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard the gospel of grace. 
And now you have the opportunity to say to the Lord, I receive your grace for the first time. I trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to save me from my sins and provide forgiveness. I give my life to Him. And for those who have in the past received uh, that initial grace of God, receive it again today. Not for your salvation. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, remember that Christ died for that sin. That Christ died for that sin. Confess it to the Lord, allowing His grace and His forgiveness to penetrate your heart. Or if this morning... uh, the Word of God, that, that verse 14, that under obligation to the, the Gentile world, if that's brought conviction to your heart, if you're thinking of people in your life, in your world, who need to hear for the first time even the gospel of grace, call upon the Lord in this time to give you strength and courage to fulfill your debt to them to share the gospel of grace. Let's take a moment of a silent prayer. Receiving in in whatever area of your life you need the grace of God, take this moment and call upon Him to give you grace in, in, in your life.